So now let's come to God's word. Um, I'm going to be reading just verse 7 from Exodus chapter 20. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Would you pray with me? Father, as we come to hear your word this morning, I pray that you would awaken our hearts to your beauty and to the goodness of this truth. Lord, that you would give Rich the words to speak. May the words of his mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Thanks, Jimmy. Appreciate it. Well, good morning again, church. It's always a pleasure to um, deliver the word of God to us all this morning. Um, So tomorrow morning, I'll be taking a short trip, as it were, up to Binghamton, New York. Uh, Now, most of us don't probably know where Binghamton, New York is, so if it helps to place it, I see a couple hands. (laughs) If it helps to place it, it's about an hour north of Scranton, Pennsylvania. So if you've seen The Office, who else is a fan of The Office, by the way, here? There we go, plenty of us. Uh, It's about an hour north of there. If I happen to come across Michael Scott or Dwight Schrute while I'm there, I'll definitely let you know. Can't make any guarantees, though. Uh, Anyways, I'll be uh, visiting family in Binghamton, New York. Really excited about that. Um, The circumstances are a little sad as my grandfather just passed away, so we're coming from all around the country to meet together just to honor him and and to kind of honor his memory as well and his life and his legacy. So um, even though it's a sad circumstance, we're excited to be with our family. Uh, We all just are so... um, We all get along so well, to put it simply. Uh, We're all kind of goofy and and kind of quirky in our own right individually on my dad's side of the family. But if you get all of us in the same room, (laughs) it's just the synergy is a real thing, right? (laughs) You should totally see it. It's kind of crazy and chaotic at times. But anyways, we have a lot of fun together, and I always look forward to spending time with our whole extended family. Um, But as you all know, and I've mentioned this before as as I've been preaching over the past year or so, absolutely, I love to travel. Uh, Whenever I get to go away for a little while, I just love simply being on the road, simply kind of taking in the sights and the sounds of just traveling, you know, kind of being out there in the open for even several hours, and going up to Binghamton is a long trip, by the way, (laughs) I think about seven hours or so. So I'll have plenty of alone time just to like listen to music and all, and just kind of enjoy all the sights and sounds along the way. But what I love especially is going through Pennsylvania A lot of people up there call it God's country, and I can see why they would call it that. It's just amazing. I love going through, uh, especially Lancaster, Pennsylvania. I love the scenery there, just the beautiful countryside and and the smells of that area. Whenever I cross into Pennsylvania, um, I immediately start to roll down the windows and just kind of take it all in. You feel the warmth of the summer sun kind of beating down on you and enveloping you. You feel the breeze kind of gently rolling by you as the windows are down, and I actually, for once, will turn down the music in my car when I do that, even. So anyways, um, those of you who know me well know I like to play my music loudly. <laughs> yes. <laughs> anyways, so I'm really looking forward to that especially, going through Lancaster, Pennsylvania. I've had a lot of good friends from that area, have made a lot of memories there, and I just love everything about it. It's also Amish country, so you see horses and buggies and all kinds of amazing things. Now, this might sound a little long-winded, but whenever you do go through that area, if you've been to Lancaster before, you probably know what to expect as well. Because as the windows are down, and as you're taking in the amazing smell, 
you also begin to smell something else almost immediately. <laughs> and we'll simply call it a cow byproduct <laughs> to be a little, uh, you know, careful with that. But uh, anyways, uh, it's, it smells terrible, <laughs> absolutely terrible. <laughs> I know one of my friends from Lancaster actually likes that smell. He's just a little strange. I don't quite get it. But um, it's not normal. We shouldn't like that smell. Anyways, um, that funky smell that just kind of saturates your whole car, um, it puts you into this dilemma. You know, do I roll up the windows quickly? Do I turn the AC off? Do I just bear it for a while? What do I do? That kind of smell, that kind of stench that just quickly comes upon us is very similar to how breaking the third commandment from the Ten Commandments is in the Christian life. Breaking the third commandment is like a nasty stench just creeping into our lives when we take the Lord's name in vain. It's an infiltration of a nasty smell, as it were, into all that's good. When we break the third commandment, it's a nasty infiltration of irreverence toward God into our worship of him, if that makes sense. Now, a lot of us, when we think of the third commandment, we think of the phrase OMG, or we think of taking Jesus' name flippantly and lightly. And yes, that's true. That is part of it, I believe. But it's also a whole lot more than just simply saying certain words and using certain words in our vernacular, taking the Lord's name lightly. It's actually an attitude of irreverence from the heart toward God, ultimately. So more than just simply avoiding words, we actually ought to tend to matters of the heart. Now, in order to unpack uh, Exodus 20, verse 7, I want us to consider the nuances of the very third commandment that we just read this morning. And here in Exodus 20, verse 7, I see three particular nuances. Of course, there's always three in any sermon, right? But uh, there are three nuances, I believe, that we see here. And those nuances are the following. God's covenant with his people that he's made with them. The matter of guilt that he talks about here in this verse. And then the answer to that guilt through the gospel, which is liberation or freedom, as it were. So covenant, guilt, and liberation. Let's start with the first one, covenant. Now, in order to keep this commandment fresh in our minds, I would love for us just to look over that verse again. If you have your Bible still open, I would encourage you to take a look at this one more time. So hear these words. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. This is God's word. It's given to us in love and for our good. Now, whenever we approach any text in Scripture, it's especially important for us to ask, I believe, three questions. First of all, what is this saying? Second, what does this mean? And then finally, after those two, how do I apply this to my life? So what is this saying? I want to answer that question with this first nuance, this first point in our sermon this morning. What is this saying? What is Scripture? What does the Scripture say here? Now, as we take a look at the third commandment, we see a very clear repetition of certain words in particular. See, God is speaking to his people here, and he plainly tells them not to take his name in vain. What does that mean? Furthermore, as you can see in your own copy of God's word, he uses a kind of covenantal language here. I am the Lord, your God. This relational covenantal language as he relates to his people. And he even emphasizes it by saying it twice over. You know, essentially saying, I am the Lord, your God. I am the Lord your God. Now it's very common in the Hebrew language to uh, stress something of great important, importance by repeating it twice over. Uh, 
in our English, we often will say words like, this is very important, or this is really important, to kind of stress how great something is. We'll say very or really, something of the sort. In, uh, in Hebrew, they actually would just simply say the word twice over. So instead of saying, it's very important, it's really important, they would just essentially say, it's important, important. <laughs> um, you get the idea, right? So a little bit of trivia for you, though, as well, for uh, fellow grammar nerds like myself. Um, if you're a grammar geek, you might appreciate this. I know I for sure do. Um, a little bit of trivia for you, though. Even the Hebrew language, their verbs, they would repeat twice over. So in essence, they would say, instead of like, you know, the girl ran to the store, they would say, running, the girl ran to the store. They kind of stress it that way with two words. Or instead of reading the book, you know, the boy read the book, it would be like, reading, the boy read the book. You get the idea. So I'm kind of beating a dead horse here, but they repeat it twice over. Here in Exodus, God is repeating what twice over? His name. Of all things, of anything that he could stress, he's stressing his name above all else. And again, with your Bibles open, if you look through the whole of the Ten Commandments, we see his name, that he's using himself with his people, not just twice here in this one verse, but all throughout the Ten Commandments. I am the Lord your God. I am the Lord your God. And it's interesting that he not only stresses it within the whole of the Ten Commandments, but he stresses it even twice here in this one commandment in regard to how we should take his name. Now, a few weeks ago, uh, Pastor Tom explained to us that the Ten Commandments uh, hinge upon those first two verses there in Exodus 20. So I would love for us to read those first two verses again because just so rich with this covenantal language again. Exodus 20, verses one through two say this, and God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God. I'm the one who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. See, by rescuing his people, Israel, from bondage and slavery under their mighty oppressors, as it were, the mighty hand of Pharaoh, the Lord actually proved himself to be far mightier than Pharaoh. You think of the actual event of the Israelites being safely brought through on dry land across the Red Sea. You know, God splits the waters. And it's this amazing scene of his power. And then after the Israelites have made it to safety and as Pharaoh's army is chasing after them, he crashes those waves right upon them again. What a mighty portrait of God's power over earthly king Pharaoh. See, God proved himself to be the one who is near to those who have been brought low. The Israelites had been in fear and and crying out to God for so long, many of them for their whole lives, God, rescue us. Rescue us from this slavery, this oppression. And he did. He delighted in rescuing his people. But God also proved himself to be mighty to save, mighty to deliver, and all the more worthy then of all of their praise and their adoration and their affection. So here's a simple question for all of us here as we seek to apply this. What has God done for you in your life? when we consider even in a very small part how he has rescued us in an even more mighty way than rescuing the Israelites through the redeeming work of Jesus upon the cross, we have this sense of amazement and wonder of his great love that conquered Satan's sin and death on our behalf. How God has sustained us even through the difficulties of life that we all face 
And I know many of us are facing difficulties even now. I've heard many of your stories the past few weeks. But God is still with us. We also know how God continually proves his nearness and his closeness to us by giving us breath every moment of the day. Joy in the little things around us and a sense of awareness and and majesty, as it were, of his majesty in all of creation. We begin to feel ourselves being drawn to worship him when we begin to realize these these things and, and fix our minds on the things of Christ. We begin to feel ourselves being drawn then to worship him as we meditate upon how good and gracious he really is. We desire to fit together the very best words that we could ever muster up in the human language to give him proper praise, to exalt his name. However, again, this commandment is spoken in the negative, right? You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Kind of the opposite of what we're talking about, the opposite of real, true worship. Now, when we look at the Ten Commandments, especially ones that start off with this classic, you know, thou shalt not, dot, dot, dot kind of thing, we have this tendency, all of us, including myself, have this tendency to kind of shrink back. You know, oh, great, here it comes. I'm in trouble. What have I done now? God's about to discipline or rebuke me, right? We have that kind of sense because we honestly struggle with sin and shame and guilt. And when we come before a holy God whose law is holy, we have this tendency to want to shrink back from him and not approach him in confidence, the confidence that we have through Christ. But see, God never teaches us or disciplines us in ways that are inequitable or unfair. In other words, he's a fair God. He's a holy and a just God. He is just, and when he does give us commands, and he does, through his word, give us commands, they are never arbitrary. They're never without purpose. But in fact, they actually are good and for our good. Now, for nearly 10 years, I worked for Liberty University, um, had a great time working there in several different offices, and uh, and, I was there as a student worker the first few years, and then as a grad student, and finally as a full-time, you know, benefited staff member, as it were, for a few years. It was a great time working for different offices, but there was this kind of common thread that all of us there knew would come, because every summer, major changes would happen. And if you've ever driven by uh, through Lynchburg, just an hour south of here, uh, by Liberty University off of 460, you'll see a ton of new buildings being erected almost every you know, few months, it seems like, quite literally. You see lots of changes going on all the time, and change would especially happen uh, at the executive level every summer. So all of us as staff and as employees and faculty and the upper administration, all of us included, we would have this sense of, okay, change is coming, summer's here, it's around the corner, and those times when change, you know, we wouldn't hear about change early on, Uh, as the summer approached, we all began to get a little concerned. You know, what's going to (laughs) happen? What's going to happen next? Because we haven't heard the rumblings or the gossip about change happening. Um, It it was normal to expect change in that situation, right? Now, for instance, when I worked there uh, in the last office, I worked for a travel office, uh, namely within the provost office, the upper administration there. And a lot of my job actually had to do with dealing with change and change management. Um, we, when I actually stepped into the position of overseeing domestic student travel for all of the students there, uh, a, lot of what they, uh, a lot of what we had to do was kind of refine the program. We were bringing all 16 schools and colleges under the same umbrella of authority, as it were. And so um, in overseeing that, we found a lot of bad practices along the way. How do we fix certain rules and regulations that needed to be fixed and refined 
to help create a more safe environment for travel to happen. Are you all following? So when we did that, I came across a lot of rules and regulations, though, that were very arbitrary, all that to say. They were rules and regulations that seemed to not be coherent, and they really weren't. So I had to kind of work out the kinks, work out and kind of iron that out over time, and affect change. But you think about it this way, that analogy aside, where a man-made kind of structure or organization has a lot of kinks to be worked out, God's law doesn't have any kinks to be worked out. God's law is completely perfect. There are no mistakes, and he's never arbitrary or confusing, as it were, or aimless with us. He never tells us to do something that runs contrary to the rest of his word. In fact, his entire law is the most coherent thing in all the earth. God himself is orderly. He's not chaotic or arbitrary. In fact, he knows all things. He has all wisdom. He doesn't give to us rules and regulations like a man-made organization might do, as good as it might be even, but rather he gives us his law, which is coherent and intelligible. He gives us commands that are, if anything, so logical that they actually transcend our limited, finite human reason. Now, it's a good rule of thumb that as we encounter things in Scripture then that are confusing to us, because we will, even maybe this commandment right here, that we actually um, understand that we can come before the Lord in humility and say, Lord, I don't understand. Can you teach me, out of humility, can you teach me to understand this rule, this commandment that you've given to me to understand? He actually invites us to come before him with that kind of uh, attitude. Now, what's amazing about the Ten Commandments is that they actually, again, they flow logically, right? They all are coherent. But when you look at this, if you look at the word right in front of you, all of the Ten Commandments actually flow logically from one to the next, to the next, to the next. They kind of build off of the last one. And it might be a little hard to see at first, but when you look at the Ten Commandments through this lens, it might be helpful to you. A lot of people, a lot of theologians and pastors over the last, well, several centuries, really, have described the Ten Commandments as being kind of set upon two different tables or two different tablets, as it were. So on the first tablet of the Ten Commandments, you have the first four commandments, which are the commandments that deal with us in our relationship to God. The last six deal with us in our relationship to each other around us. And so when you think of the New Testament and how you know, uh, Christ confronted one of um, the teachers of the law, and he basically said, you know, what is this law all about? The guy actually answered him correctly by saying, you know, there are two commandments. And Christ said, you know, yes, you are right. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. Everything hinges upon these two great commandments. And so there in the Ten Commandments, you see that we should love the Lord our God and that we should love our neighbor as ourself. One through four, and then one, uh, sorry, uh, yeah, I <laughs> can't do the math. Five through ten. <laughs> I almost said one through six. Um, anyways, when you see that, hopefully that helps, you begin to see how it's kind of separated. And even these first four commandments, one through four, have this certain order to it. It's really interesting. So when you look at the first set of commandments, how we actually relate with God, us to God, we begin to see how we should actually worship God. Not just relate to him, but how we should actually be giving him the praise and adoration that is due his name. 
So, for instance, in the first commandment, we see that God alone is the object of our worship. In the second, he affirms that we shouldn't have any other gods before him, that we shouldn't be worshiping any other person or thing that would take the place of God in our life. The third commandment that we're talking about this morning has everything to do with worshiping God with reverence, a real attitude and a heart of worship. And then finally, the fourth one has everything to do with how he has even given us this day, this full day of rest to worship him rightly, like we're doing this very day. We have this opportunity to dedicate our worship to him with a community of faith as as Christians. So really, each one of these commands is given for our good so that we might know God and also then worship him rightly. Now, uh, for parents of young children, I'm sure when it comes to discipline, there have been many, many, many opportunities, (laughs) understatement there, for you to discipline your children, right? Uh, Again, understatement. And the classic one for little kids is don't touch the stove because why? (laughs) It'll burn you. It's hot, yes. Uh, And then, of course, as they get older, you know, the rules and regulations kind of change a little bit. For teenagers, a lot of times it's, hey, you need to be home by 9 p.m. as they start driving and all. You need to be home by 9 p.m., And you might not give them the reason why, but truth be told, it's because there are a lot of drunk drivers on the road late at night. It's for their safety that you're actually saying, hey, be home by nine. I don't want you on the road when 20, 30% of people out there driving might be drunk and might run into you and cause you harm. I don't want that for you. I want to protect you. See, good parents discipline their children. And rules and regulations, of course, as simple as it sounds, are truly meant to protect us to guard us, to keep us from harm, and to actually safeguard our well-being. Now, God disciplines and instructs us, his children, in a very similar way. He doesn't chastise us as like little kids or whatever, but he gives us warnings that are always attached with promises. Warnings that are for our good, that are meant to protect us, but that also offer uh, a safeguard for our well-being, to give us life, to give us protection. See, he knows our hearts all too well. He knows that we tend to take him and his word lightly. He knows that we um, are, have this kind of attitude in our heart against him. And so he actually instructs us to fortify a posture of deep humility toward him as the king over our lives and to never treat his name above all else with contempt or derision or to disregard it or greater still, and here I think is the greater meaning of this commandment, to misrepresent him before other people. See, more than just using certain words like OMG or taking his name flippantly, breaking the third commandment has everything to do, I believe, with misrepresenting God before other people by abusing his name he's given us as Christians. Now to reiterate, the law of God is designed for our good. More than a simple list of do's and don'ts, the law is primarily spiritual. Please catch that. It's primarily spiritual. It's meant to actually deal with the matters of the heart and our dispositions. Scripture tells us that the law of God is written on all of the hearts of every single human being created in his image. And that every single one of us stands in a kind of covenantal relationship with God. We all stand made to enjoy him, made to glorify him, made to worship him. And yet we all know deep down, intrinsically, by God himself though, really, that we've failed that. 
that we failed our end of the relationship there, that we don't worship him as we ought to. We all have, as it were, broken that third commandment. But we also know through scripture, because that gives us the answer, that there is a redeemer. Though we are covenant breakers, as it were, there is a covenant keeper, namely Christ, who has maintained and taken upon himself the law and, and perfectly fulfilled it in himself and gives it his active obedience, as it were, his perfect righteousness to everyone who puts their faith in him. See, as Christians, we don't throw away the Ten Commandments. Rather, they are purposed to show us our guilt, our sin, and to then drive us quickly to Christ himself in the gospel, knowing that we ourselves have failed to uphold them and that we can only seek to keep them out of an ardent love and adoration for him. This brings us to our second point this morning, and these last two are much shorter, don't worry. <laughs> um, the second point this morning that I want to talk about, the second nuance, is that of guilt. So covenant, guilt. Now, we've been talking, again, about this idea of covenant, but we can't gloss over this sense of guilt because the word is right there in this text. It wouldn't be faithful for me to skip right over it as easy as I would like to do that, right? But Exodus 20, verse 7 says this, The Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Now, before talking about guilt specifically, it's important that we answer the bigger question here that's going on. You know, what exactly does it mean to take the Lord's name in vain? While we certainly, again, should not be using the, Lord, uh, the Lord's name flippantly in our speech, I believe the heart of the command, again, just to reiterate, is more so about the conduct that we put on, our behavior. You know, it's more so about honoring God with both of our speech, what we say, how we use his name, but also how we actually behave as Christians. Now, contextually here in the book of Exodus, it was a common practice for people to make promises or oaths. This is the direct context, as it were, of this passage, taking oaths in God's name. They would take promises, make promises or take oaths, and they would swear by the name of a higher power whenever they would do that. So you see elsewhere in the Old Testament especially that as the prophets would prophesy that, you know, this is surely going to happen, how would they say that? They would say, as surely as the Lord lives, the Lord will fill in the blank. He will do this. This will happen. Or by God, by his name, this will happen. Fill in the blank. And so do you catch the gravity there? So prophets of God who are meant to be his mouthpiece actually would use the Lord's name rightly and say, as surely as the Lord lives, this will happen. So for people to take an oath in God's name on the flip side to take his name in vain and to say, oh yeah, this is going to happen and God is my witness, you know, that kind of thing, and for it to not happen was actually dragging his name through the mud, as it were. Now, people in our own uh, culture do this, and I've hesitated even in talking about this, but I'm going to go ahead and go for it this morning. Um, a lot of churches uh, in our own culture, um, especially nowadays in the 21st century, will use God's name lightly or in vain, and they probably don't even realize it. Because a lot of quote-unquote churches in our culture have drifted away from the gospel. They've gotten away from the truth of scripture and they've replaced scripture with man-made rules, with moralism. They've replaced worship of God and, and knowing Christ for who he is with this false gospel of self and self-promotion. So many churches have actually been and become devoid of the gospel 
over the past hundred years or so. Uh, it's kind of a hot topic of mine, so I'll stop there because <laughs> I don't want to talk too much about that. But in those cases, these, these quote-unquote churches that have forsaken the gospel, they're still around but kind of shrinking, honestly. Um, they have actually taken God's name in vain. A lot of people as well, to kind of use a different analogy or a different example, even from our own culture, is when you look at cults. When you look at cults around you, a lot of them will take God's name and they will use it to abuse people who fear God. You know, so you think of the Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses who take the name of God and they twist the scripture to their liking and they distort it and they actually will lead people astray. Um, when we think about um, our own day and age even, we think of um, not only cults and, and these kind of churches that have forsaken the gospel, but um, we also think of people, honestly, if I can go here as well, people who kind of elevate spiritual experiences, people who elevate, you know, this sense of God speaking to them outside of Scripture, and they use that to then also manipulate people. You know, God told me this, God told me that, and it runs contrary to Scripture. Now, granted, you know, we should be hearing God, as it were, through his word. You know, as the word is preached, as we read the word, as we hear it, we should be hearing God speak to us through his word, you know? But whenever we are putting words into God's mouth that don't belong there, we run the risk of taking his name in vain. So do you all catch the seriousness here? See, the third commandment is all about the right way to worship God with reverence. And I think people who unintentionally break the third commandment, and again, we all do in various ways, but people who do it very, very often, um, when they unintentionally break the third commandment, they often mean well. I mean, I think they actually do mean well in that they, they want to speak uh, you know, of God in the public arena. I think they mean well in that, but they're not going about it the right way. So we walk on thin ice, really, whenever we put words into God's mouth, again, that don't belong there. And the deceit and the destruction that follow this kind of behavior or teaching leads many astray in time, as we've seen in examples around us. This is why those of us who teach and who lead and preach and shepherd and counsel here at Grace, just leading in different ways, um, this is why we aim to be good stewards of the gospel. Because we don't want to take the word of God lightly. We want to be actually responsible for applying God's word carefully and yet as faithfully as, as we possibly can. So first and foremost, we are accountable before any other person to the very word of God. You know, your leaders here, people around us, we've submitted ourselves to scripture. We seek to see ourselves be under God's authority and not our own. And we're accountable to the word of God. And your elders and your deacons have both uh, made uh, vows, really, to submit ourselves unto God's word. So with all seriousness, church, uh, please do hold us accountable. Please. Because we need that accountability as much as anybody else does. See, if people who are teaching and leading around you, especially in this setting here at Grace, I'm not saying we are, by the way. I think we are not, if anything. But if we do, if we are devoid of the gospel, we will begin to teach things that are contrary to Scripture and more in line with the shifting cultural ethics around us. If we're not being nourished by the light of God's countenance daily, then we'll go about serving others out of a sense of drudgery rather than joy. If we are not bound by and in our own consciences to the word of God, 
Simply put, church, we will fail you. But on the flip side, to put it positively, if we are bound by the word of God as we lead and teach and shepherd you all, then honestly, we will love you well by God's grace. We will then be motivated to provide spiritual care and nourishment wherever we can, as much as we can. And we will seek to serve you out of grace-infused love for Christ and then you as well as his people. See, church, our obedience toward God is tied intrinsically to our love for Christ. Love itself is the aim of these Ten Commandments. Love. Matthew Henry, the great theologian, put it this way, that the grand demand of the law is love. Again, the grand demand of the law is love. See, tending to the law of God without love is mere hypocrisy. It's a clinging symbol, right? Just like the Pharisees and the false shepherds of Israel did back in the time of this writing and beyond. But proper obedience is rightly compelled by love. It's the love of Christ that compels us to honor God as holy and to keep the third commandment, let alone all of them. And to not be double-tongued or two-faced in how we go about our worship of him. Speaking of that kind of mentality, James speaks of this, and it's just chock full of wisdom. But James chapter 1, verse 26 says this. If anyone thinks that he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. In other words, irreverent religion that takes God's name in vain it really amounts to nothing before other people. If anything, if we take God's name in vain as we are Christians in this community, we'll leave a sour taste in the mouths of other people here in our midst. There's a great gravity there, right? Hear this as well, a little further in James, James 3, verses 11 through 12. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. See, on the flip side, we are meant to not be double-tongued or two-faced in our approach to living the Christian life, but rather, and I would love for us to let this sink in, we are rather called to spread the aroma and the fragrance of Christ wherever we go. Hear these words from 2 Corinthians 5, 20 through 21. They tell us this. Therefore, we are ambassadors of Christ. In other words, we represent Christ before other people here in our community. God makes his appeal through us. So we implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. See, the gospel truth that we find in the third commandment here in Exodus 20 is this, that though Honestly, we all find ourselves guilty of breaking this commandment. His answer to our guilt is nothing less than the perfect, righteous Christ himself. Christ, the sinless son of God, who became a curse for us upon that cross of shame. And by faith in Christ's atoning death for us, we stand forgiven, cleansed, liberated. We stand as people who are free who are recipients of an emancipation from the wicked jaws of death. So that brings us to our third 
And again, by far the shortest point, <laughs> liberation. Now you might be asking yourself, uh, how do I apply this truth of the gospel from the third commandment to my life? I believe the answer is quite simple. And it's as simple as flipping the third commandment on his head. So when we read this, the third commandment, we see, you know, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God's name in vain, right? But if we were to flip the language on his head from the negative to the positive, in a positive way, it says this, essentially, implicitly, you know, we shall take the name of the Lord our God in what? In reverence, in awe, in astonishment, in wonder. So do you catch my drift? How do we do this then? We love him. We adore him. We praise him. We thank him for the gospel and this amazing grace that he's given to us. See, his name should be on our lips as we go about our days. It's not that we stop talking about God at all in any way. Rather, we talk about him in the most reverent of ways, in the most beautiful of ways. As Christians, as people who bear his name before the culture around us, we are designed to adorn his name, to adorn the gospel of grace with how we live our lives. We are meant to be a fragrance of Christ to all of those around us. Now, um, I saw a glimpse of this the other day as I was over at Starbucks, and um, uh, I've already gotten permission to share this, so thank you, by the way. But uh, I was over there working on my sermon and ran to Mary Baldwin over here. And uh, for those of you who know Mary, she's just a wonderful picture of uh, a person who has so much joy, the joy of Christ. And it was amazing because as I was working on my sermon, I could even hear over my, uh, the AirPods, right? I'm one of those Apple geeks. Over my AirPods, I actually heard her laughing and people at Starbucks were just joking with her and having this great time with her. And it was just amazing to see just a small picture of what joy in the Christian life will lead to. You know, it was kind of quiet before that, but then when she walks in, just boom, the whole place went, it came to life. And shortly after that, I got to then meet uh, Scott Knight. He's one of the pastors here in this area um, who we pray for, honestly, quite often here, every month or two. Uh, he's a pastor over at Rivanna. I got to meet him, and same kind of thing as well, just very refreshing to be around other believers, right? And then I saw uh, Stephen and, and Carly Walls-Mathis, and just more of the same. And I was seeing just picture after picture after picture of people who love the Lord Jesus and who were right there at Starbucks, drinking and enjoying coffee, um, enjoying each other's fellowship, though. It was a small glimpse of what the kingdom of God looks like as it continues to advance in our midst. See, when we represent Christ around town, we, when we abound in the fruit of the Spirit and seek to honor Christ as Lord, we inevitably become like a pleasing aroma to those people around us. We can't help but not be a pleasing aroma if Christ is the Lord over our hearts and we honor him as such. We unknowingly even revitalize each other and we refresh each other when we least expect it. But see, cherishing the name of the Lord God and holding the name of Christ dear to our hearts doesn't simply just refresh us and other people. See, when we keep God's name in reverence, um, we begin to see the law for the good gift that it really is to us. The law is meant to direct us in how we should rightfully please and worship God with our lives. And it finds its fulfillment in the person and work of Jesus for us. So if I can use one final, one last coffee analogy, <laughs> I'd like to go there with you. Um, when we take the law by itself apart from the gospel, it's like drinking a bitter, dark rose coffee. 
Um, I've had a couple of those in the last week, by the way. Normally drink it dark myself, but when it's like really dark, you know it, and like you have to reach for the nearest sweetener next to you. When it's that bad, you have to sweeten it up. When we look at the law, apart from the sweet nectar of the gospel, it's like drinking a very bitter coffee. It still is good. It still actually has great effects and that kind of stuff, and the caffeine rush feels good too, of course. You can pay more attention to that kind of thing. It still has good effects, but it's missing something, right? But when the law is taken with the gospel, when we understand the goodness and the holiness of God alongside his loving kindness toward us in Christ, the result is this complex, amazing thing to behold. We don't disregard the law as Christians. Rather, we say, God, thank you for it. And let me learn to live in accordance with it all the more as the days go on. Not that I please you by keeping my end of it, but rather I please you and I want to please you because Christ has fulfilled it for me. So out of a heart of thankfulness, I want to follow you. So as we wrap up, I have one final question for you all this morning. What is that aroma that we are spreading? See, if our aim is to honor Christ, as a people who bear his name in our community, we will so spread a fragrance of grace throughout our community, wherever we walk. So my friends, let us sing of Christ. Let us tell of his praises, and let us be that pleasing aroma wherever the Lord takes us. With all that in mind, let's come before the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you that though we are so unworthy, you were pleased to rescue us, to redeem us, to free us from the bondage of slavery to sin. God, we thank you that though we surely don't have it all together now, as Christians, we are the first, hopefully, to confess that we are so desperately still in need of you daily, every hour we need you, God. Even though those things are true, we find ourselves to be more loved than we could ever imagine by you, our Father. The sweetness of the gospel informs how we ought to live, how we ought to be a pleasing aroma before you, a fragrant offering, as it were, with our very lives, and how that aroma can't help but then spread throughout our community. So God, we ask with earnestness that you would use us here at Grace as a community of believers in Christ who love you, who are upheld by your name, who seek to make Christ first in all of our interactions, that people would walk away being encouraged and refreshed by us, and that they would desire, they would desire Christ above all else. So Lord, use us to be witnesses of this gospel of grace wherever you take us. And we ask all this in Christ's mighty and powerful name. Amen.